0: Well, good evening. Glad to see you all. Thankful to be back here in the land of the Cleveland Baptist Church. How's that sound? We're back in the land, right? That's what they call this city, the land. And uh, we're glad to be here since I was with you the last time. We've been to Colorado and done a couple of meetings there and then uh, got home from there and went on to Kentucky, uh, to Owensboro. And then uh, we got back from there and uh, Denise and I just got back on Monday from Houston, Texas from a missions conference. So I feel like I'm the bouncing ball, bouncing across the country from meeting to meeting, but it's been good. We're thankful for it. And uh, by the grace of God, I've been able to raise some money for missions and even some of the work that uh, God has called us to do. Uh, Just some good things have happened recently with our Bible project. And of course, you know, the church here has taken the lead with that project. And of course, it's more than just what the church has given. It's a fairly extensive project, at least even the first phase of it. Uh, and uh, we originally said it was going to be about um, about $160,000. It's ending up being over $200,000 for the first phase. It's because the container going to the Philippines that we're shipping there next year for our, our meeting uh, ended up being uh, $60,000 just for the Bibles in that particular container. And then we had to raise the funds for the uh, shipping cost. And, of course, like everything, you know, cost is going up. And so... Anyway, uh, we were very grateful that, of course, the church came in with sixty thousand, and they were we were able to divide it up over several countries, and so we designated twenty thousand dollars for the Bible project um, for the Philippines. So that container we had twenty thousand dollars, and again, it was a sixty thousand dollar project. So I had two, uh, one, uh, a church give five thousand towards that, and another individual give five thousand, and I made made a call to a pastor. And I said, you know, I asked him, I said, would you like to have a part of that? And he said, well, how much more do you need? And I said, well, we need $30,000. so he said, okay, we'll send the check. Don't you love that? And uh, we, the church got the check. I saw the, the receipt that it's been set, sent in here. And so uh, just in March, um, Denise and I actually were over in Indianapolis. I reached out to a pastor and said, uh, you know, I've got a free Sunday. I'd love to come by and just share the ministry. And so we are there. And so just yesterday, their church voted to send $10,000 to the Bible Project. And they'll take care of the $4,500 of the shipping of that container to the Philippines next year with another $5,500 going towards the Bible project. So God is blessing that uh, that effort of raising funds to get the word of God out. I think when you put the, pra- the emphasis where God puts the emphasis, which is the gospel and-, and the word of God, God blesses that. And so if you continue to pray with us about that, we sure would appreciate that and uh, make a... Uh, a tremendous blessing, uh, not only to to myself, but uh, many, many folks that'll be the recipients of those um, those Bibles going around the cu- around the world, literally. And uh, you know, we think again, just take f- for granted the fact that we have a Bible, but so many people in this world don't. And so we just need to again uh, encourage uh, that particular uh, matter. Wanted to mention to you that um, just a couple of things as you go through your uh, handouts that you received tonight. And, of course, the prayer list is uh, on uh, um, fairly extensive. We don't have time to go across that or on that. But if you would uh, put Brother Jerry Ruff on that uh, particular prayer list, he's going to be going into the hospital. Larry, Larry, I'm getting just a little bit of a ring down here. If you can back me down just a little bit. I'm just getting a little feedback there. Uh, But he's going in the hospital tomorrow and just uh, hopefully some tests and just in and out so it won't be a long situation. I just may be in the wrong spot here, maybe too far forward. Well, That's all right. We'll be okay. I just don't want to hear my, myself ringing all night long. So anyway, uh, but if you'll you know, just uh, put him on that list, and of course, go through this prayer list. And uh, as you go through there, of course, there's just all kinds of things, things that are highlighted, things that we need to be praying about. And uh, again, um, Wednesday night, of course, is a time in which we uh, do take some time to pray, and, and we want to just uh, spend a few moments in that. But I uh, also want to remind you that this coming Sunday is a couple of things. First of all, it's Palm Sunday. Which is really the start of what we would call this, the season in which we celebrate the Lord's crucifixion and his resurrection. And of course, uh, about from Sunday to Sunday, you got eight days there. And uh, next Wednesday night, which will be right in the middle of that, uh, we will not have the regular class. It will be a combined church service, and uh, the church will be uh, coming to the Lord's table, I would assume, that night. And so I want to encourage you to be here if you're a member of the church. It 's a wonderful opportunity for us just to reflect on the gift of salvation, uh, what God did for us in providing for us, and so we want you to be praying about that this coming Sunday, though not only being Palm Sunday, but it 's also friend day here at the Cleveland Baptist Church and uh, the thought is and we 're trying to get one hundred guests in the services on Sunday with the opportunity of course, to present the gospel to many that don 't necessarily have an opportunity to hear it on a regular basis and you know, I was just reading this morning my personal devotions. I finished the book of Acts yesterday, so I was reading the book of Romans chapter 1. And I was thinking about the Apostle Paul. You know, we live in this day and age where we're getting a lot of pushback towards spiritual things, specifically biblical things, right? I mean, people are not, ah, we don't still believe the Bible. Yeah. But you know, they didn't believe in Paul's day either. Did you know that? In Romans chapter 1, Paul was talking about the, the uh, wickedness in Rome. And Paul said in Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Amen. for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also the Greek, and, and then he talks about God bringing salvation by faith to faith, and so we just don't know. We don't know what God's going to do, that gospel seed being planted in someone's heart, the Holy Spirit of taking that and then uh, obviously bringing it to fruition and bringing life to a person who perhaps even per, uh, uh, previously had rejected that message or didn't want anything to do with it. Paul certainly didn't. When God uh, stopped him on the road to Damascus and changed his life. And so let me encourage you, let's not be ashamed. Let's do our best uh, to um, go ahead and reach out to folks and encourage them to be our, our guests. So we have two more Super Saturdays, this coming Saturday as well as the the Saturday before Easter which we're doing outreach to the community with door hangers and just opportunities, obviously, to touch the community. So please, if you can be here, that would be wonderful. One of those two Saturdays are both of them, and I'm sure there'll be other things that will be done as well for those who perhaps are not able to get out and do the walking that's involved in that. So again, want to encourage you to be involved and at least be praying for those particular needs. And again, on Easter, of course, we'll have a regular schedule, uh, the, the services, I don't think there's any change on the Sunday morning and Sunday night will be the, the church's special music presentation on, on uh, Resurrection Sunday evening. So again, that's always a blessing and a wonderful time. want you to be praying for uh, Brother Ron Jackson. I haven't heard any reports uh, recently of what's going on there in the U- Ukraine and in Poland, wherever he may be tonight. But continue to pray for him, of course, and what God is doing there in and through his life. And, of course, Brother Jim Pranger helping him as well, and the team of folks that are together there. So just, if you would, continue to pray for them and any, other, obviously, other needs that the Lord brings to your heart in life and using the prayer list to do that. Well, we're in the book of Micah tonight, so if you want to take your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of Micah, just a small little six-chapter book towards the end of the Old Testament and of course, right after the book of Jonah, which we've been studying here, and um, so we're going to be in Micah chapter one through three tonight. Micah chapter one through three. So I know that I sometimes talk about this in our in our time together, but but I don't know about you, but I um you know you have to ask yourself this question: What happens when a nation has terrible leadership? Oh. Okay, you know when you think about a nation, you think about a people, and they have terrible leaders. So we often hear about the form of government. Sometimes we say, oh, well, you know, it's a dictatorship, so therefore it's a, it's a terrible form of government, or it's, or it's socialistic, so it's a terrible form of government. So obviously we know that our, our nation isn't um, a dictatorship. It's not a, it's, not a, uh, it's not a socialistic government, at least at this point it's not. Uh, but we often hear about that, and ours is supposed to be a rule of a people, what we call a democratic republic, rule of a people based upon a document or a contract called the Constitution. That's supposed to be the founding document that governs our nation. And, and of course, all laws are supposed to be in alignment with that Constitution. And, and then, a, if there obviously, the people vote their leadership in to, to help that. So we have three branches of our government. Our, our founding father said, you know what? We're looking at England. We're seeing what's happening there. We see the vestige of power in a monarchy. So let's, let's divide our government up to three branches that will all hopefully balance each other. So we have the executive branch, president, vice president, le- legislative branch, which is Congress and the Senate. And then you have the judicial branches, the Supreme Court, which is obviously supposed to you know, balance the other two. So the idea, again, is that our founding fathers said, hey, we don't like what we saw and where we came from, so let's kind of divide this. And, and really, when we think about it, they, the, the idea was to put a kind of a check and balance system. But the problem is, not regardless of what kind of government you have, not, please don't misunderstand me, there are wrong kinds of government, but regardless of what kind of government you have, when you have poor leadership, bad leaders, it doesn't matter what kind of government you have, it's going to end up in a disaster. And so, you know, from my perspective, we have so many wicked and ungodly people controlling us today, who are leading us, and we are now seeing and feeling the effects of that poor leadership upon us as a people. And we're seeing all this nonsense that's going, this transgender nonsense, and the and just the you know the 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 craziness of of our government and the things that they're you know putting forward that women are men and men are women, and it's just it's just nonsense. And and so we're seeing the effects of that. So. Again, I want you to understand it isn't the form of government. It's the character of the leaders that make the difference. Now, the best forms of government are useless unless the people governing them are good men. Would you agree with that? This, today? So, so think about this. John Adams, who was our second president, here's what he said about our Constitution. He said, our Constitution was made only, listen to what he said, it's made for only moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to, to the government of any other type of people. So, in other words... This founding father said, you know what, if, the, if this country can only survive if we are good people, if we are moral, if we're godly, if we have a heart for the things of God. So when we look around and we see that that's not who we are today, that we are very selfish and sinful people, then it's no wonder that our, our, our government is falling apart and our nation is falling apart. So today our study is from one of the minor, minor prophets, this book of Micah. And the key verse is found in chapter 3 and verse 11. Let's look at that very quickly if you would. Here's the kind of the, you want to know what the whole book of Micah is really about? It really centers around this verse, verse 11. The heads thereof judge for reward. So time out for a moment. What does that mean? They're taking bribes. They're, they're, you can get your verdict if you've got enough money. The heads thereof judge for reward. The priests thereof teach for hire. Give me enough money and I'll tell you what you want to hear. So they teach for hire. And the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say is not the Lord among us none evil can come upon us so again this whole thought is that micah's going to deal with the corruption that affects the nation of Israel not just Israel but at this point you have to remember that Israel is divided into two nations we have Judah in the south and we have Israel in the north and of course uh, his his uh, if you would his prophecy his message really deals with both nations. Now, at times he singles out one or the other, but really he, he deals with both of them. And so that's the thought that we're going to deal with tonight is what's going on in the nation of Judah and why did God raise up this prophet at this moment in this nation to confront what was happened by the Assyrians into captivity. That happened in 722 B.C. And of course, Israel, uh, Judah itself as a nation survived that even though the Assyrians tried. God turned, their, uh, turned them back for a while. But at a later time, the Babylonians came down in 605 B.C. and started carrying them off into captivity. And as a result of that, of course, you you have the judgment of God falling on these people because they did not heed this warning that God gave to the prophets. Let's bow our heads together and and ask ask the Lord to bless our time of teaching tonight. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, we're grateful to have health and strength. We're grateful for a place to gather. Lord, as we consider what's going on in our world, we think about the happenings in Ukraine. Uh, we realize, Lord, that uh, that nation is under siege and people are suffering tonight. And Lord, we're blessed. We still have freedom. We still have, uh, we still have privileges. We still have opportunities. And Father, we have to think that as Mike of old confronted the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel, Lord, that you still are at, we're dealing in the hearts and lives of people in, in this world today. And so, Father, help us in the next few moments to take some time. Just to walk ourselves through these passages tonight. And hopefully, Lord, you'll speak to our hearts and show us truth that will be a help to us. And Father, I do pray for Brother Ron Jackson tonight. Bless Brother Ron and uh, Brother Pranger, Lord, as they're ministering, and many, many others who are there doing work trying to be a help to refugees and trying to encourage them during a a difficult moment in their life in which their whole world literally has fallen apart. And some, perhaps, no doubt, have seen death and destruction like they've never imagined. And then, Father, we think of Brother Jerry Ruff here tonight, who has a doctor appointment tomorrow. We pray that things will go well there with the doctor and the hospital visit. And then, Father, we continue to pray for those on the list. We continue to call it the name of Mary Maline and, and Fran Palmisano. And, uh, Lord, we, we think of so many that are dealing with for Brother Adrian and his recovery and just so many folks that have so many things going on in their lives would you help them tonight? And then, Lord, we think of our church leading up to some very special days this coming Sunday. Lord, as we begin the really the, the reflections towards the, the the day we would think about as our Lord being crucified on the cross, and then, of course, the celebration of His victory over death, hell, and the grave on Resurrection Sunday. We pray that these would be great Sundays here at our church, and we pray for the outreach opportunities that are afforded with us because of these these days. and. Lord, I pray for people to be receptive, and Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be like the Apostle Paul, and not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but understand it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Father, please bless tonight, and this time together we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So um, we know that the Bible teaches that all men are sinners, and our sin can get the best of us, is that? No question about that, and we see that specifically for those that do not have a relationship with God. So Micah, as a prophet, points out the sinfulness of both nations, both of the nation of Israel and Judah. So let's look, you've got a handout there, and we're just going to kind of walk through this outline together uh, tonight. So we look at uh, Micah chapter 1, verse number 1. The word of the Lord came unto Micah, the Morosite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Let me just point out a couple things here, if I may. First of all, we find Micah's person and his prophecy. So his origin, not much is known about this man. Again, like many of these prophets, they all of a sudden just kind of show up with the call of God upon their life, and they begin to share a message that God has burdened their heart with. And he's referenced here as the Morsite, and this is a reference to his hometown, of which was and of Gath. And it's a small little village. So as you're thinking of geography, I want you to think about the nation of Israel. It's not a very big nation. That's about 60 miles wide, maybe 120 miles long. So not a big nation at all. Uh, but down in the south, about the south, maybe two-thirds down, you'd find this, the city of Jerusalem. And if you go southwest out of Jerusalem, you're heading down towards the Dead Sea. And uh, evidently, this was the area where, uh, where Micah came from. So he's, he's from Judah. He's from that, that, tr- that, that nation of Judah. When the separation came He found himself, obviously, his family being part of the nation of Judah. Uh, You go, uh, obviously, north of uh, of Jerusalem, and you get to a line, and you have the ten tribes in the north which made up the nation of of Israel. Their capital was Samaria. So it's referenced here, Samaria and Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. Samaria is the capital of Israel. So that's why those two cities are mentioned because those were really, the, if you wanted to, the seats of power of these two nations. And so Micah was called to prophesy both to Samaria and to Israel. And so he was born and raised in the nation of Judah, yet his ministry was to both, both those nations. Notice his, his era. So the time of Micah's ministry is approximately somewhere between 735 to 700 B.C. 735 to 700 B.C. And uh, his contemporaries were a couple of uh, several other of the prophets we've already looked at. Uh, you would have Hosea, who was a prophet that we've looked at. Amos uh, was also contemporary. Isaiah was a contemporary. Uh, of course, Isaiah's ministry was more towards, uh, towards the nation of Judah and, and Israel. But also Jonah was a contemporary. So those four prophets would have been living around the same time that Micah lived and prophesying about the same time he He prophesied. So God had raised up some mighty men of God to confront the nations during this time in which this wickedness was really proliferating. And these nations were going off the rails and God was just trying to pull them back. He's saying, here's some men of God are going to confront this stuff and going to deal with it. So his era. And then, of course, he's mentioned in verse number one, we find that there are three kings in Judah that are mentioned here. Would you notice them? We have Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So all all those kings, if you want to do a study about the timeline of them, you can go back to the book of Kings, 1 Kings, Second Kings, specifically 2 Kings, you would find these particular kings mentioned. They all were kings over the, the, tri- or the nation of Judah, those two tribes in the south as that division had come. So that was his era. His book, of course, Micah's prophecy concerns Samaria and Jerusalem. We already mentioned those both were capitals. And these two cities represent their various kingdoms. So Micah, as Micah points out, Judah was just as sinful as Israel. So, so, so here's what happens. Sometimes in our mind, we think, okay, specifically I do this, because as, as I'm reading through the Old Testament, and I, I find all these ungodly kings that are kings in, in, in Israel, right? I mean, it starts with, uh, with the division when Rehoboam sat on the throne. You had Jeroboam who took those ten things. Remember when God said, I'm going to give you, Jeroboam, ten pieces of the tribe. I'm going to rent it from the, the sons of David Because of David, I'm going to let them keep a portion, but you're getting ten of them. And so Jeroboam becomes the first king. And what does Jeroboam do? He sends up those those idols because he didn't want the people to go into Jerusalem. He didn't want them to go back to Jerusalem to worship because he's thinking, man, if they cross this line, they cross this barrier, they go there. They're going to be reunited with those people and they won't won't come back and and live here in, in the north. So he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up our own little uh, way of, uh, of worship. And so they made these calves for them to, to bow down to and offer sacrifice to. And, of course, it just becomes a problem from that point forward. So every king in Israel, every king, not a single king in Israel, was a good king. Not a good one. So we sometimes look at it and say, well, okay, well, you know, Israel was really, really ter- terribly bad. Yeah, it was. But Jerusalem, uh, Judah wasn't too far behind. So they had some good kings, but they also had some bad kings. They had some some guys who uh, obviously caused the nation to drift. Now, now here's the problem with drift. Once you start drifting, it's awful hard to start pulling back. Amen. And so, you know, when you start to see this drift, there, there's a natural there's a natural tendency in all of us to drift. And that's why we say all, often, you know, okay, read your Bible every day. You need that. You need the, you need to read the Word of God. It feeds your soul. It feeds your spirit. You, you, need, you need to pray every day, seek the face of God, but you need what happens in this place. See? And so it's so easy when we get out in this world because the world has a whole different God out there. It's got a whole different voice that's pulling us. And so we find this drift. And so the, as the nation begins to drift, so we look at our nation, okay? So we're looking at what's happened in America and we see this drift. And I, I don't know, could, could there be a spiritual awakening? Sure, there could be, yeah. But but the truth of the matter is, you know, you start to pull, pull it back. And, and even if you pull it back, there's always that resistance that wants to go back to what was and even take it further. And so you know, when we think about Israel, we, we think about the, the, those bad kings. But what we need to understand is that Judah was not far behind them. So these were uh, both Judah and Israel. Uh, they, they both regenerated. While they had some good kings, again, they had bad ones. The word of the Lord came to Micah in three segments. I want you to understand that there, there are three really Segments to his message, and they all begin with the word here. In other words, H E A R, you need to hear, right? So we, we see that in verse number two. Notice that if you would. Here. Then you'll see it again in chapter three, verse number one. And I, and I said here. And then if you'll look at chapter six and verse number one, I said there were seven, six churches, ch- chapters, there were seven here. So those are the three sections. They begin. With that word here. And so he's breaking this book down into three different segments and reminds them that sin leads to a discipline. In every one of these sections, he's talking about the sin of the people and the fact that because of where they are, the, the judgment of God is coming. God is going to bring judgment upon them. And so God has an expectation for his people, and that's found really in chapter 6, in verses 7 and 8. Look at that, if you would. These are key verses. You may be familiar with these two verses in the book of Micah, but here's what he says in verses 7 and 8. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? So he's asking, can I make up a difference with God? Can I I somehow just offer an offering? Can I do something to get God's favor? That's his question, right? Because because kind of the natural response is, okay, what do I have to do to get God's favor? Well, look at his response in verse number eight. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. So, So what does God expect? What is good? He has, and what doth the Lord require thee? Here it is: but to do justly, to live your life properly, to do live by God's rule, do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's how we, that's how we, we, we have a, a blessed relationship with the God of heaven. Now, I've said this before. I'll repeat it to you. And, and There's others that have said this. I'm sure teaching this class as well as from this pulpit. Nobody, nobody earns the favor of God upon their life by what they do. Amen. God chooses to love us. It is irrevocable. For God so loved the world. He does love us. But the truth of the matter is, if you want the blessing of God upon your life, see, uh, the idea is, okay, I get saved. Well, okay, what's the, what's the outcome of my salvation? Well, I need to do justly. Amen. Not, to, not to be saved, but because I am saved. I need to love mercy because God's been merciful to me. Amen. And I need to walk humbly with my God. You know, God hates the spirit of pride. He lo- you know, we're, we're, we're such a prideful people today. And, and, you know, we hate to humble ourselves. We hate to admit that we're wrong. We hate to, you know, you know even before the, uh, the great God of heaven who knows all about us. We hate to admit that. And yet God says, these are the three, three things that I require of this nation. And Unfortunately, they were failing in all of them at this point. And we're going to see that. So Micah's book, think about this. Uh, judgment and future restoration are themes of this book, giving a message of hope and for a righteous remnant. So, again, there's always hope. There's always hope. Even with the, the midst of judgment, there's always hope. And uh, again, that happens. Those, those two thoughts, this judgment and, and again, some hope, is found in each one of these segments of his book. So his book also contains element of messianic prophecy. So what, what do we mean by that? We say messianic prophecy. So, so uh, he's 700 years before Jesus, right? When we say B.C., that's what that means, before Christ. Uh, and so when we say that, we, we say, okay, Messianic prophecies. okay, he's looking forward in the tunnel of time. He's looking in the telescope, seeing out in the future, and he's laying some things out in regards to this Messiah that's coming. So Micah chapter 5, verse number 2, speaks of the, the, the birthplace of Jesus. Thou Bethlehem, though of effort to be small of, of, all, the, of village, uh, all the cities of, of Judah. Yet out of these shall come forth him. I'm not exactly getting this right. You can look at it yourself. But he basically says, this is the place. This is where the Messiah will be born. He gives him, pinpoints that 700 years before it ever happens. So you ever wonder why Jesus' parents both were raised in Nazareth? Why they end up in Bethlehem? Because God had to move them there. And that taxing of uh, uh, during the, the... Time in which Jesus would be born, moving uh, everybody had to go to the to the, their home. And of course, they're both, both parents are from the line of David, so they've got to go to Bethlehem. That's where David's from to, to register. So God obviously is very, very precise in what he gives. And so Micah gives us that. He also, uh, Jesus will also reference this in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, when he says about Christ's coming, that he puts people at odds against each other. They're, they're pitted against each other at the coming of this Messiah. All right, so that's his, his timing and his era. Let's notice number two, Micah's lament, uh, laments over destruction. Micah's lament over destruction. And we find that in verses 2 through 16. And um, notice if you what he speaks of a, what do we call an approaching destruction. So as Micah opens this first segment, segment of his book, he portrays a court session. So I don't know if you've ever been in a court of law. Hopefully you don't have to, but if you've ever been there, it's a little bit frightful. And, uh, you know, um, I've had the opportunity on a couple occasions to do jury duty. Not long ago, I was called to jury duty, and I sat in the jury room, and they dismissed us, and I didn't have to serve, which I was happy about that. I, I don't mind serving. It's just that, you know, it's just a, it's time-consuming, and I'm glad that we have that system. But, you know, you walk into a courtroom, and uh, whether you're the jury or whoever it is, and when that, when that judge walks in, all stand. Now, it's not you're standing before the judge. You're standing for what the judge represents. So he represents, he's vested with power. He's vested with the, with the laws, and he represents justice. And so we stand because we, we, we're, we're uh, overwhelmed by that. So he pictures our Lord entering the courtroom of his holy temple. And in heaven, one commentator states it this way. The image in verses 2 through 5 is a court of law, with God as the judge and Judah and Israel as the defendant. So think about that. So here is the God of heaven who knows all things. I often think about the great white throne judgment, and it's a fearful thought. I'm so grateful because of salvation. We don't have to worry about that. Amen. That great white throne judgment is for the lost. But you have all these people in this world who today who just don't think anybody's paying a bit of attention to all their shenanigans and the foolishness of their lives. And the Bible tells us there in, in Revelation chapter 20, that great white throne, that the books are opened. So God is recording. You know, I think about this all the time. Every place you go today are cameras. They're recording every move that you make. So, you know, these people think they're getting away with crimes. All of a sudden they start searching the cameras in the city and they see these people moving from place to place. They see them using the credit card they just stole and they see them buying the stuff that they're going to use to commit some crime. I mean, it's, it's incredible, right? They got nothing on God. God has recorded it all in books. And people will stand before God and he's going to open it. You can imagine the, the fearfulness of that moment. You know, these, maybe I shouldn't use this word, These idiots. <laughs> Who say, who say, I'm going to tell God a thing or two, and I say, oh, yeah, you will. I don't think so. Uh, you will be falling on your face in fright as the king of the universe, the almighty God opens the book. So that's the picture that we have in verses 2 through 5. Notice what he says here in book of Micah. He says in verse, Hear ye all all, all you people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down into a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob in all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So you get this picture of this majestic, powerful one stepping out of heaven. And just like wax melts, the uh, fire melts the wax and it runs. I mean, that's the picture of God stepping upon this earth that is just giving way as he uh, steps over mountain to mountain. And uh, like water runs down and and creates these these caverns. It's the the power of God coming. And God says, "Okay, I'm here. I'm down here, I'm, I'm right where you are, and I'm here to execute this judgment upon you. And this mighty God, this mighty God is now stepping down into this, this picture. So notice in verse number two, Micah addresses all the people of the earth. Would you notice that? It's not just Israel and Judah. Now, why is that? Well, because Israel and Judah are his per- 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 uh, per- peculiar people. But, but understand this, while they're his special people, God's jurisdiction is the whole earth. It's not just one particular tribe of people or nation of people that, that are just, you know, he's chosen for himself. No, all people are accountable to God. The whole earth. Amen. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He's God of it all. And so uh, his jurisdiction isn't limited just there. So God did have a special relationship with these people, but he, he's got governs overall. So what happens in these chapters ought to be a wake-up call. Think about this. ought to be a wake-up call to all men. God will judge the nations. And we've heard recently about these atrocities over in Ukraine I'm telling you, nobody's getting away with that stuff. That's right. Amen. It, may, it may seem like now, well, you know, who's going to hold them accountable? There's a God in heaven to hold them accountable. Yeah. Whether it's Putin or whether it's whoever it may, it may be. Uh, you know, Hitler, he, you know, he's already having his day. But the day will come and they'll stand before God. I'm just saying that the, nobody gets away with anything. The nations of the world do not get away with anything. Amen. It's God knows all. And so the northern kingdom and its capital of Samaria would, be, uh, would experience judgment first. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, therefore I make Samaria as a heap. God's saying, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to make them as a heap. So when you think of a heap, when you think about just turning something over, don't you think of dumping something out? God said, I'm going to make them a heap. I'll make them a heap. And he said, and, and the field and the plantings of the vineyard, and I'll pour down the stones thereof. Into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. So he's saying, "I'm going to overturn these cities. I'm going to, I'm going to just bring them down to nothing. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and and all the hires thereof shall be burned with fire. And the idols thereof will I lay desolate, for she gathered it of a hire of a harlot, and they shall return it to the hire of a harlot. So this, so this northern kingdom of Samaria would experience judgment first. So Judah would follow. And we'll find that in verses 8 through 16. So, the, so I mentioned a while ago, the Assyrians would take Samaria in 722 B.C. They would take the city of Samaria, the northern kingdom. They would carry them off into captivity. Of course, many would die. But those that were left would be carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. And that would happen, think about this, after a three-year siege. So, you know, we, we're watching this battle unfold over in Ukraine. And, of course, we're in, what, day, like day 40 now of this, the battle of Ukraine. Maybe a little bit more but you, you understand that, you know, how they were talking about they were going to you know, lay around the city of Kiev and they were going to you know, stranglehold it. Well, that happened here. It happened in Samaria. For three years, they, they laid this siege of the city to, to strangle it, to, to get it to the point that it had no ability to function. So in 722, they finally took it. And uh, the, the Bible talks about that. And if you want to hold your place here, in Micah, go to 2 Kings chapter 17. Look at this passage real quick. 2 Kings chapter 17. Look at verses 5 and 6. One of the great things about your Bible, is a great book of history. Some wonderful history that's written here. 2 Kings chapter 17, look at verse number 5. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. So again, you understand, they're just holding. Nobody's coming, nobody's going, they're besieging the city. It's like a stranglehold. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria, took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and Hebor and by the river Gozan in the cities of the Medes. So he took them away. He he took them away just as God said it was going to happen. So his judgment fell just as Micah said it would happen. Now the Assyrians would take away the idols of Samaria and beat them to pieces. Look at that if you would in verse number seven. So why was God angry? Because he had a covenant with these people and they weren't to make these these. Uh, these images, right? That's what God said in the, in the, in the book of the law, the, one of the commandments. Thou shalt make no graven image. Thou shalt bow thyself down to them. So they made these images. And so God says, okay, you've violated this covenant, so I'm going to uh, bring down this destruction. So he says he's going to beat them to pieces. Now Samaria was often, we, we often hear of the false god Baal, right? You remember hearing about Baal in the Old Testament? So what sometimes we don't know, unless you, again, do some study on this, Baal was the god of fertility. So again, you know, you hear Astaroth and Baal, those were two. So Baal was the the male god and Astaroth was the female kind of deity. Those two kind of went together. So what happened a lot of times in the worship of Baal was temple prostitution. So when it talks about this, the hire of a harlot here in verse number 7, that's what he's speaking of. He said, you've made these images with the hire of the harlot. And he said, they're going to return to the hire of the harlot. So God was going to send them away. You know, again, this just God is, is going, to do, going to do righteously. He's going to judge justly. And these things were were God was was bringing into the open that maybe no one was aware of, but God was aware of it. And he says, the reference, of course, at the end of verse number 7 is to these temple harlots. Notice the the prophetic lament. We find that in verses 8 through 16. Now, Micah's response to this judgment, what would his response be? Oh, I'm so glad. No, no. That's not his response. His response is found here in verse number 8. Notice what he says. He says in verse number eight, therefore I will, ho- will howl, I will wail and howl. I, I will go stri- uh, stripped and naked. I will make the wailing like the dragons and the mourning as the owls. So, so here is this prophet was not happy about the fact that he's delivering this me- message of judgment and he knew what's going to happen to, to, to uh, Israel and the fact that these things are going to happen. Micah mourned for two reasons. First, because Samaria's judgment was unavoidable. They had crossed this line with God and, and he knew they wouldn't turn back. He knew they wouldn't repent. They, he knew they wouldn't get right. So he understands this judgment is unavoidable. So he's, he's, he's wailing because of that. And it was like an, an incurable wound. Second, God's judgment would spread to the south of Judah and, and come to the gates of Jerusalem. Look at verse number nine. It's, for her wound is incurable, for it shall come unto Judah. He has come to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Now, let's time out for just a moment, because I said the Assyrians would come in 577 uh, BC. They'd strangle uh, Samaria, carry them off into captivity. A few years later, the same Sennacherib and his armies came to Jerusalem. And they also besieged the city for a number of days. You remember, we, we read about that in, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 19. We don't have time to look at all these passages tonight, but if you go home, jot that down in your notes if it's not there. But 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 34 to 37. And, and you may remember Hezekiah is sitting on the throne at that point. And Sennacherib has come, and he's going he's to you know, lay the city waste. And he's got 180,000 men. Can you imagine 180,000 men sitting outside the gates, ready, ready, ready to invade the city? And you remember how Hezekiah went before God and laid that, that message out? And Isaiah came and said, hey, God's heard you. And the next day, you know, there was a, the angel of the Lord came and uh, those, those tents were empty. Those, those, uh, they, they were all as dead men. I mean, God just did something mighty there. He delivered this nation, showing them mercy, probably when they even, didn't even deserve it. But God w- was merciful. But that's why, uh, you know, we have Micah lamenting. He's seeing this this. This, if you would, this drift from the north to the south. He's seeing what is happening to the neighbors to the north. Their sin is now trickling down to, to Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem, even though they've had some good kings, they're, they're kind of following the same path. And so he's weeping over that. The problem with Samaria was that she was toxic and her infection traveled to the south to Judah. And Micah was moved with great emotion by what was going on. It wasn't unusual for these prophets to cry. They, they did that often. Jeremiah was known as a weeping prophet. He laments. We have Lamentations, about five chapters in which he's sharing his broken heart over Jerusalem and, and, and Judah's sin. So uh, he cried because they, these things didn't have to happen. They happened because the people refused to live up to God's covenant. So Micah spends the rest of the chapter speaking about various cities that would, be, would experience pain during uh, this invasion. And by the way, though Jerusalem didn't fall, as Samaria came, and, or, or I'm sorry, as the Assyrians came up, they did invade 46 different cities and probably did a lot of damage there in the south. But Jerusalem itself and the nation itself was spared, even though they did and uh, deal with a lot of difficulty. Point number three, Micah's warning to, to the evildoers. We find that in chapter 2 and through verses uh, 1 through 13. Notice we have in verses 1 through 5 a warning to the people. Um, notice it starts with the word woe. Whoa! This is not woe. Stop! This is whoa. This is heavy. This is this is big stuff here. This is overwhelming stuff. I'm, it's woeful. It's 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 heavy. So woe! The, the, the Micah spoke woe to the people of Judah for their covetousness and materialism. So woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence, and the houses they take away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. So let's stop for just a moment, just break down just what he just said. So you may remember when God brought the people of Israel into the land. Even in the law, he said, now look, when you come into the land, I'm, everybody's going to get, a, get a, a piece of ground, right? So this is your, this is your heritage, this is your family heritage. So, what happens when people get into financial trouble? Well, they could, you know, today we'd say, well, I'm going I'm to sell the house, I'm going to sell the car, you know, I'm going to sell some, whatever I, I can to, to pay off some of my debts. Well, in, in the days of, of, of the Old Testament, specifically the nation of Israel, God said, okay, you can sell it, but you can't really sell it. You can really only mortgage it for a short time. So, in other words... Every 50 years, what was called the year of Jubilee, all the property that had been previously owned by a family had to return to those people. Okay? So let's just simply say if there's um, six years to the year of Jubilee, I can sell somebody or mortgage my property for six years. But at the, the end of six years, they got to give me my property back. They, they can pay me something for it up for six years, but it's not going to be permanently theirs. But what was happening here is that people were violating that covenant. They, they were saying, OK, we know what God said, but that's not the way we're going to do it. I'm buying this stuff, and you're not getting it back. And so they were taking the houses away from the people. They were taking the property away from the people. And, and this was God's way of keeping people from getting too powerful. In other words, because you had to return what you, that, wasn't, that belonged to somebody else. Can you imagine, you know, if we lived in this day and age, you see all these people who buying all this property. What, what if every 50 years it had to revert back to the original owners? Wow. See, so it would be a way of, God's, God is equal. He, he has a way of equaling things out. The problem is we don't want to live by a standard. And so God said, this is what I want to do, but these people weren't doing it. And so they were, they, 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 here, here's what they do. They lay in their bed at night and they make up their plans. That's what verse number one and two talks about. So they, they plot on their beds. They lay awake at night. Here's what I'm going to do. And tomorrow, because I've got the power to do it, I'm going to get up and I'm going to carry it out. And that's exactly what they did. And so uh, the, the thought is that, that we've got these people that are taking advantage of, of less advantaged people. They, they become materialistic. They become covetous. So Micah states that they made their plans in their bed. Verse number three. We too must remember that God does not look favorably upon covetousness and materialism. When we become a materialistic people, God is not favorable to that. Now, now look, there's nothing wrong with you having some nice things in this world. Nothing at all wrong with owning a home. Driving a nice automobile, having some nice clothes, living a, a comfortable, nothing wrong with any of that, except when that becomes the thing you live for. Amen. When, when we, become, we become materialistic, and we, you know, it's always about having more and the next big thing and the next good thing. And I've got I just got to have this and I've got to have that. You know, the truth of the matter is no matter what you have, it, it, it doesn't satisfy We see that in the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon, the great king, who had everything. What was his his famous phrase? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all empty. He had it all, but nothing there was satisfying. So Micah states that, you know, these people, you know, were living a covetous, materialistic lifestyle. Those of us who are saved, we need to focus on, think about this, while we live here and can enjoy life, we need to focus on laying up treasure in heaven. Uh, I can't tell you, as I conduct these missions conferences across the country, I often say to people, and you've heard me say this when I was pastoring you, I don't know how many funerals I've, I've conducted in the 40-some years of ministry that I've been in, in this church. I, I'm guessing probably four to 500 funerals, and never one time has anybody taken a U-Haul to the cemetery. Excuse me, We're going to leave it all behind. But you can send some on ahead. You can lay up in tr- treasure in heaven if we believe the Word of God, uh, the, this, the, the person who is wise isn't going to live for the things of this world. They'll enjoy the things of this world, but they'll make their investments long term in the things of heaven. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with investing here and being ready for retirement. There's nothing wrong with any of that until we just make that the focus of everything and it drives every decision and, and we become covetous and we have that evil eye the Bible speaks of and, and, and it's just, it's, it's terrible. So we live in a time when it seems like the wicked people are prospering. But remember, there's a God who knows all and who at a point will respond. So he warns the people. Now notice in verses 6 or 11, he warns the prophets. Now the following few verses are a little bit difficult to understand. However, the key is to realize that there is There was a pushback from those who didn't like Micah's message. So as you read verses 6 through 11, that's what you need to remember. They're pushing back because they don't like this message of judgment. They don't like the fact that they're being condemned. I think it's interesting. People in Judah didn't want to hear the prophets speak judgment. Look at verse number 6 of chapter 2. Prophesy ye not. Say they to them that prophesy. (laughs) Don't, Don't say that to me. I don't want to hear that. I don't like your message. Prophesy ye not. They, they shall not prophesy to them, They that, uh, that they shall not take shame. And then he goes on in verse number seven. O thou that are named in the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? So they didn't like, they didn't like this, this message. They didn't, they didn't want a real man of God to stand up and call out their sin. They, they liked the newer, more sociably acceptable neo-prophets. We have those today, don't we? They didn't want anybody to point out their sin. They didn't want a prophet that would coddle. They wanted a prophet that would coddle them, speak good words, even though they were far from God. After all, they were wealthy and they were getting more by taking advantage of the poor, according to verse number 8. And, and they were casting out widows, the widows out of their houses, verse number 9. And, and, and the kind of prophets they wanted were not those that God would send, verse number 11. Now, I don't want to offend anybody here today, but I just have to bring this out because it's just on my heart, and just recently happened. So just this last week, last Wednesday, Denise and I flew from Cleveland to Houston. And I, I've flown into Houston before, just kind of passing through the airport. I've never spent any time in Houston. So we flew into Hobby Airport. There's two hot airports in, in Houston. You've got Bush on, on the north side of town, and you've got Hobby on the south side. And where we were going was closer to the Hobby. So we, we got there, we picked up our rental car, we're driving, and we just got on the highway. And we're driving down the highway, and all of a sudden Denise says, look over there. I look over there, and what do I see? Lakewood Church. And I don't know if you know what Lakewood Church is or not, but it's the home of, of Joel, Osteen. Uh, Joel Osteen, exactly. The smiling guy, right? Yeah. And uh, so she said, she said, look at that place over there. Well, you know, I just had to do a little research. Joel Osteen pulls in 52,000 people a weekend to his, his Lakewood Church, which was the former home of the Houston Rockets. And I was just reading this today and and as a result that I, I think to myself, okay, I'm in Houston, Texas. It's a city run by a bunch of liberals. Every place I saw I saw a bunch of homeless people camping out on the streets. Just, again, just the idea that we we're seeing a, a lot of just the you know overrunning of our, our nation of, of just kind of sin and vice. Every place you'd look you'd see things that were, were reprehensible. So Joel Osteen could hardly be considered a, a prophet, much less a preacher. He's more of a motivational speaker. Here's a quote from Chris, uh, Christian Post. This, is not, this would not be a fundamental uh, piece, okay? This is not necessarily something that a fundamentalist would write. This is, the evangelicals are even writing this. It says, quote, Osteen, is, who, al, uh, who also is the author of several New new, uh, new York Times best-selling books, is known for his motivational messages, though he has been often criticized for largely avoiding such topics as sin, Satan and hell in his sermons, end quote. So again, why do people flock there? Because they like the message. There's not anything negative here. You can be your best you now, you know. I mean, this is the whole idea of just, and this was what was happening in Micah's day. They, people were not helping people by giving them this nonsense. They need the word of God. They need to hear what God had to say, and they didn't want that. So here's Micah condemning the prophets because they wouldn't stand up. So, Joel would fit right there where these people of Judah were living in the days of Micah. The prophet Micah was not a popular figure. And no man of God is when you're living in a culture that wants to go its own way and does not want to hear from God. You'll never be popular if you speak the truth in such a place, in such a time as that. Notice there's also, if we come to the end of chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we have the future promise of restoration, a promise of future restoration, verses 12 and 13. So this is interesting. The Last two verses at the close of Micah's first section. So remember those sections are broken down. We'll start the third, uh, second section here in just a moment. But uh, these two verses close out his first section, and they end on a high note because the note here is that hey, there's a time coming, and God is going to. Uh, it's it's like the storm is passed. You know, there's something about a, a bad bad storm, and you know it's the wind is howling and and the lightning is flashing and and the and the thunder is rolling and the house is shaking and the wind is, I mean, just, you know, I don't know how many of you folks remember Hurricane Sandy that hit us several years ago and that came up the coast and whipped around and, and I, I mean, I never felt my house shake like that in my life. And I got up early on the morning after that storm had passed and I, I, I was just, I'm pastoring the church back in those days and we don't live very far from here. So I, I left my house, came up a bit off the road, came up here to Tiedemann and turned on to Tiedemann Road, man, it looked like a war zone. I mean, these big old pine trees were laying down on the ground. It, just, it, was just, it was just amazing. But, you know, it's like after the storm passes, it doesn't take long once people get busy cleaning up stuff. And God sends the sunshine out. And then, then comes the rainbow. That's kind of what you have here at the end of chapter 2. All this, this negativity. And then all of a sudden he says in verse number 12, God promises the gathering of Israel together as a people in the future. And he will be their shepherd. That's what he's saying. He said, I'm going to gather them like a shepherd gathers the sheep his flock together. He said, I'm going to lead them out of, their, out of, their, out of the, the land and, or in the land. And, uh, you know, think about this. These people, they were so un, unsettled. They, they had no peace. They had no contentment. But there's one thing about a sheep sheep that are led by a shepherd. That shepherd's always making sure they're being fed and that they're content. And so it's like, okay, God is saying, okay, you you have all this negativity, but when I step into your life, when I become the Messiah of your life, there's going to be this, uh, this blessing. And Jesus even speaks to this moment in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 41. And we don't have time to turn there because I'm running run out of time. But notice, it, finally, Micah's message against the leaders. We get here to chapter 3. That's verses 1 through 12. He, he, he talks about the, the rulers, verses 1 through 4. Now Micah brings a railing condemnation against the Hebrew leaders in his day, uh, contrasting them to the loving and gracious care of a great shepherd. These leaders did not have the best interests of his people, Notice in verse number one, they perverted judgment. They loved evil rather than good, verse number two. And they were like wild animals ravening their prey, verse number three. But God would deliver them and his judgment would fall upon them, according to verse number four. So he, he brings a message against the leaders. Uh, then he, he brings it against the prophets, verses five through eight. The following verses are strongly condemned the false prophets that were hirelings. Instead of uh, steering the people toward God, they led them astray. Uh, they would bring food as an honorarium to these prophets, and as they were devouring their meal, they would tell these folks the things that would make them feel good. Verse number five. You just bring me something to eat, and I'll tell you what you want to hear. I'll give you a good message that'll kind of tickle your ears. That's what he's saying here. And God was going to judge these false prophets. When the Assyrians came and carried off Israel, and at a point when Babylonian came to carry off Judah, these false prophets had no message. Because they were all saying, No, it's not going to happen. Don't worry about it. It's, it's not a big deal. So, again, these, they had no message. They, they can continue to speak wrong things, but God would, not, would deal with them. Micah states in verse number 8 that he has a right message and God's spirit to deliver it. Then he, then he speaks against the rulers, priests, and the prophets, verses 9 through 12. So Micah's connect, connecting the dots for the people of God and, and his coming wrath on these folks. And that, the final few verses, verse 9, both Jacob and Samaria had leaders that abhorred judgment. Think about that. They abhorred judgment. They twist to the truth equity. It's like today, people in leadership lie because it fits their narrative. It doesn't matter if it's the truth, it it doesn't matter if it's a lie, it fits their narrative. They pervert justice. Think about all the destruction we saw happening here in the last several years and times in which people, you know, depending on what side you were on, you know, there was no, no justice whatsoever. You just, nobody was accountable for the burning of cities and the destruction of property. They just let those people walk away. And then we have the situation unfolds on January the 6th. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just simply saying we see it, it happened. And some people didn't even go into the Capitol and they've been arrested and they're sitting in jail for since over, uh, over a year now, a year and a half now. Just ridiculous. It's just a perverting of justice in our society. So, again, we just need to understand how things are happening. Verse number 10, they build up Zion with blood and iniquity and violence. Verse 11, bribes for judges and hireling prophets who would say whatever they were told, whatever they were told if they got the money. And the height of the hypocrisy is seen in the things that, uh, that they do, these things, and, and, and that God detests. In other words, uh, they're doing things and, and they're not even close to what God wants. Verse number 12 speaks of God's judgment. They would become like a plowed field and a heap of ruin. The day would come when Micah's message would be proven true. So, our time is gone tonight. Just wanted to kind of finish up that outline for you. But here, here's what we need to understand. Is the message of Mike, Mike is a f- fact that God at a point deals with people. Amen. And we have to understand the application of that for us. Okay? Nobody gets away with anything forever. And there is a day of justice coming to this entire world. Not just to one people, but to an entire planet. And the God of heaven someday, probably before too long, will say, okay, I'm done. And his mercy will have come to an end and he will come and gather his people out and those seven years of judgment will come and then he'll set up his millennial kingdom. And and again, the justice and the righteousness of God will prevail. That's the message for tonight. We need to understand we have a great God.